0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Spocky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump.
1: They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open the store, run down to sell one, and get a bugler can for Spocky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There
2: were a great
1: many wild cats
2: around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house
1: and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special edition of Stool Pigeon Saturday. My name's Anthony, and I'm speaking to Skye down in Texas. Hello. Hey, Sky. Today's guest is someone we've wanted on the show for a super long time. We've got our very own state historian, Hannah Lori Hine, in the studio today.
3: And I am so excited to be here.
1: We've brought you up so many times in so many episodes. Like, we got to ask Hannah Lori about that. We should have her on the show for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this just happens to be an episode all about something we're all experiencing right now. Let's start just kind of with your background. Anna-Laurie, can you tell us about your education and how you came to Idaho and became a state historian? And, yeah.
3: I would be happy to. So I'm originally from Colorado. I'm not born and bred here in Idaho, but I've called Idaho home for the last eight years. Uh, I moved here in 2012 for graduate school. I completed my undergraduate degree at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I studied there with Dr. Patty Limerick. Uh, she's one of, I think, the most renowned historians of the American West, and I was very fortunate to cross paths with her. But once I came to Idaho, I was really focusing my, my studies on kind of the cross-sections between environmental and entrepreneurial history in the American West. And so through my program at Boise State University, I really had a chance to kind of dip my toes into both of those uh, fields. And I graduated and I ended up working as a consulting historian for about six years with a local firm here in town. So I I had an experience in the private sector where I was working in business and we were working with clients and providing litigation support for environmental law. And that experience really allowed me to research all over the country Uh, look at documents and repositories that included the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and College Park, Maryland, down to the small county repositories in, you know, Bakersfield, California, for example. So that research experience was invaluable, and I joined the Idaho State Historical Society team last August, a year ago in August, and I'm so happy in this role.
1: We're so happy that you're here. Yeah, you've brought so much to, you know— I mean, when was the last time we had a state historian?
3: Well, our previous state historian uh, had worked for the agency for close to 20 years, but he wasn't here in Boise. And his role was really quite different. It was about promoting the agency through outreach with some of our smaller state you know, entities, county yeah. historical societies, county museums, uh, and helping kind of one off on projects. And that was an incredibly valuable role that he played. But I think. The fact that I am here in Boise and I have a chance to walk down the road and go visit my colleagues at the Old Pen, (laughs) it's a really different experience.
1: What's kind of your day-to-day as state historian? Like, what what does your job entail?
3: My job is managing a lot of moving pieces and juggling a lot of balls of different sizes and shapes and, and weights, if you will. My day-to-day involves the the work of a traditional historian, so I I have time set aside to do research and review historical documents and follow leads. Um, I try not to get too deep into the rabbit holes, you know, because again, I have a lot on my plate. But I also am in a position where I get to support everybody else's work. And that is really what I find most enjoyable about my job, is seeing how everyone else has a program or a project that they are passionate about and that they've recognized has value for the agency and uh, will draw an audience. And I get to help them do that work.
1: Are there ways that listeners can reach you if they have questions about Idaho history?
3: Absolutely. So. My phone number and my email address are public knowledge. They're available to the public. It's listed on our website. Um, I do receive a number of patron outreach, everything from uh, university students who are looking for maybe help for an assignment where they maybe need to interview a historian to uh, a grandfather who has lived you know, in Idaho his whole life and has a question about his property and doesn't know how to answer it. So those kinds of uh, requests are absolutely welcome and I answer them as quickly as I can. But in the coming year, I think we're going to have more opportunity to hear directly from me uh, as an agency. We'll have some some forthcoming and exciting opportunities for folks uh, where they can really connect with the work that I'm doing.
0: I think it's really neat and that your position is certainly one that I you know, as I'm sort of finishing up my PhD and realizing that I'm not getting a job, job in academia, um, that, that that is really your position is something that I think would be really uh, interesting to me. And so I'm very excited to hear about what you've come across in your research and the way that you help others um, really get excited about history and, and especially... Idaho history because um, I think Idaho too often gets sort of pushed down as like one of the least interesting states especially down you know down here in Texas I've experienced multiple people who like don't even know where the state is and me just trying to not absolutely scream at them like this is the coolest place ever and you're wrong so I I'm just very excited to have you here. Well,
3: I think that uh, we will have lots of opportunities to chat about crossover in professions and in academia and in public history, too, Skye. So I welcome those conversations. And maybe that can be a, a future podcast episode.
1: Yeah. So on September 1st, 2020, you published a briefing called Idaho's Response to the 1918 Influenza Pandemic that provided historical insight into how Idaho responded to one of the worst pandemics in our history. At the time of the publication, the United States was at 180,000 deaths from COVID-19. And today, October 21st, 2020, we're sitting at just over 220,000 deaths. I want to ask first, what was it like to research a pandemic while in the midst of a pandemic?
3: The purpose of this paper, I'll back up just a little bit, um, actually stemmed from a government request. So for uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure you're aware, that the Idaho State Historical Society is a component of state government and we've been a state agency since 1907. So we have a responsibility to support our government entities, including the executive branch and the office of the governor. Uh, And as the pandemic was unfolding back in March, I remember seeing a number of op-eds and items coming out from historians and scholars attempting to draw correlations between past medical emergency crises and what we were experiencing today. And of course, the 1918 uh, Spanish Influenza was a topic of great interest, I think, in part because it was almost a century ago. And uh, other pandemics that maybe have happened in the 1950s or 1960s, they just didn't have that like big centennial anniversary feel. And so um, I actually held off on trying to draw comparisons between the current pandemic and the influenza of 1918, in part because I saw others doing it, but also because I think as a historian, we really do need to have time pass mm-hmm. before we can make, not judgment, but before we can really interpret how that event is going to shape the future. And so when I received this request from the governor's office, it came right after the 4th of July holiday, And they said, can you provide some context on the Spanish flu and how specifically how the state of Idaho responded to that pandemic? I was excited about the opportunity, given, you know, who I was going to be writing for. But I was a little hesitant about having to draw conclusions to something that was ongoing.
1: What sort of sources could you pull from?
3: Well, that was another interesting approach, I guess you could say. I mean, it was... As a a trained historian and as somebody who has at least at this point six or seven years of really professional research experience under my belt, there were types of records that I knew I was going to want to go to first. Uh, And before I even started what I consider archival reconnaissance and identifying important collections or important entities, I went back to a number of those op-eds and the items that I had seen published in public channels. To start there. One of the items that I actually relied on quite heavily to at least frame my argument and frame my research was a project that uh, Dr. Kevin Marsh and his students completed um, out of ISU. And it was a summer seminar. And so they had, I think, three or four weeks' worth of time to conduct some research. They pulled basically stories. Uh, at a city level, about what happened in Wallace, what happened in Chalice, what happened in Pocatello, provided a kind of statewide view into experience. But again, it wasn't state response. It was it was city-level experience. Um, but in looking through that, there were some trends that really popped out, that A, the records were sparse, B, not a lot had been written about how the state of Idaho had responded to this, and C, that any statistical data that came out of the 1918 Spanish flu was going to be skewed simply because of everything else that was going on in the 19-teens. Of course, uh, with efforts in Europe during World War I uh, and just other, you know, progress, you could say. I mean, we're in the middle of, of a decade where women are fighting to get the vote. There's a lot of public stuff going on in that decade. And so to try to capture accurate data at a time when the primary means of communication was still written letters or telegrams Mm -hmm. and to move quickly I I could just imagine what those challenges were. Uh, So I I kind of took that that step back and, and tried to assess where I knew my holes were going to be and I kind of held that information over to the side and then I did my archival reconnaissance and I used all of the resources that are available to me here at the Idaho State Historical Society and the amazing staff at the Idaho State Archives in in getting to the important stuff. And what I ended up realizing was to tell the story of the Spanish flu, I really needed to tell the story of Idaho's public health systems. And I had to start at that foundational level because I was writing writing for somebody who is the governor of our state, but who doesn't have that base knowledge, maybe in historical context, the way that I do as the state historian. And so I didn't want to just jump into, you know, the first cases of Spanish flu and when they showed up, because there there wouldn't have been the context. And I think that's really the value that historians can bring. To any project, whether it's context for the governor, or whether it's to help other, you know, municipal entities make decisions, or whether it's to, you know, reach the general public so that they have a better understanding of why it is we're making the decisions we're making today, you have to lay the foundation. Mm-hmm. So kind of back to your question about resources and, and specific collections that I looked at, I went straight to the government records materials in the Idaho State Archives. And of course, that is part of the mandate of our agency, is to manage the government records on behalf of the state. And interestingly, in starting to figure out who those big players were, I realized that our state health entities had only really come into existence in 1907. Wow. So we are less than, you know, if you think 1907 to 1918, that's hardly 10 years to have developed an entire response and infrastructure and framework for managing crises. Mm -hmm. Um, The records that were most valuable to me included the records of the State Board of Health, which was the entity that existed during this time period. But even within those records, there were massive holes. And even, um, you know, aside from what was clearly missing, there was documentation that indicated that those records had never been created in the first place. So that was an interesting experience as a historian, knowing that was the public government group that was supposed to have provided the records you know, for posterity. Yeah. And they didn't have the money to print their reports. <sighs> wow. So that's, that's where my training really came in. And I said, OK, where else might this information be, Mm -hmm. and what would be the most reputable source to find it. So of course I I went to newspapers because that always helps in kind of establishing a timeline, Mm -hmm. because you can see how the newspapers were reporting things. And the newspapers confirmed that the State Board of Health was meeting, and they were making decisions, and they were um, passing motions to try to curb this disease. But I also realized that the other big player in all of this was the State Board of Education. And at first glance, if you're thinking about a medical emergency and a a health crisis, you're not gonna think about how the State Superintendent of Public Instruction is going to influence any of that. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, the State Board of Education's annual reports laid out exactly what the State Board of Health did when they did it, why they did it, and then how the State Board of Education responded in turn. And so it was one of those aha moments for me as a as a historian to think about really how government interplays mm-hmm. and how the records of those entities have to be looked at together when you're trying to create context.
1: Was it a kind of a eureka moment when you saw those notes from the state board that
3: yeah it was it was definitely a a like gold mine moment where i felt kind of not justified but i felt vindicated in knowing that i could do this and i had i had a path forward yeah and that particular aha moment then led me to look at the records of the director of the state penitentiary Uh as another lens into how the state itself responded and i also looked to the annual reports of the other professional offices that existed within the state board of health Mm -hmm. so in 1907 when we when the state created this entity it had specific positions outlined as to who would sit on the board so one of them was the state engineer because at the time, water quality and uh, making sure that there was no wastewater in your freshwater was a major concern for public health. The attorney general was on the State Board of Health, and then there were a number of doctors that were also included on that that board. But I, I went to the state engineer, and I went to the state attorney general's annual reports for those same years. And interestingly, the attorney general's report's actually indicated that he thought sitting on the State Board of Health was a waste of his time. Oh, wow. And that he had more important things to do than to help determine and create policy for the state. And I think that that was really, really interesting. And, and some of the research that I did to expand on the story of public health systems, I actually took the story all the way through the 1970s. Hmm. And, you know, it kind of came full circle because – In the 70s and leading up to the 1970s, the Attorney General's office was incredibly instrumental in helping the state legislature and the then Department of Public Welfare revise state statute to strengthen the county health systems and the district health systems to be more in line with Idaho law. So had the Attorney General not had, you know, close to 60 years of experience in sitting on this board and in having you know just a foot or a hand in making those decisions that office may not have had the vested interest in assisting to make public health more accessible for idahoans
1: was there something that spurred its creation in 1907 like was there a pandemic that was happening or something that
3: I'm glad that you asked that question because I I wondered the same thing yeah. when I realized that it was a law from 1907 that created this system. And what I have come to realize, and I did, again, newspaper research to help confirm this, but we were dilly-dallying as a state. So every other state in the nation, really by the turn of the century, had already established boards of health. Some of that stemmed from the results of the industrial, you know, revolution that really kind of brought the nation through the late 1800s and the massive influx of immigration into the United States during those last couple of decades of the 1800s specifically on the east coast. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have more pollution, you have dirtier spaces and you have more people filling those spaces. And so public health became more of, more of a concern, and the US Public Health Service, which was the federal organization that helped oversee public health, was really pushing for states to put together the infrastructure so that the state had a level of policy decision-making and then the counties would implement. And so that is the system we ultimately adopted, but we, we were just a little late to the game.
1: I think before we talk about the impact of the pandemic itself, can you just talk about what the 1918 influenza, its experience like worldwide and the the actual illness itself?
3: Sure. So again, I'm not an expert in medical history or anything of that nature, but in the research that I did for this, the numbers and, and the statistics that at this point most historians agree on is that during that kind of year and a half, two-year period, Nearly a third of the world's population was infected yeah. with this strain of influenza, and more than 675,000 people died. And that even within those numbers, in the United States at least, tribal populations were hit harder. Uh, here in Idaho, the numbers that exist, and again, they're, they're conservative numbers, just mm-hmm. given the, the struggle that the state and the counties faced in terms of reporting the number of cases mm-hmm. It was 11.5% mortality rate across our five federally recognized tribes, and that was more than double what the rate was amongst non-tribal Idahoans. So that's just to kind of take that step back and recognize Mm -hmm. the volume of people, and unfortunately I don't know what the world's population was in 1918. That's a number that's not coming to the front of my mind, but... It's still a massive volume of, of casualties, and impact was, was huge. I know most of the general histories of pandemic, of this particular pandemic, which, you know, there's, there's some interesting stuff to be said about the historiography of how and when and why yeah. historians have written about this particular event in world history, but they have, have all agreed that it was more devastating than World War I. Yeah. than the casualties that occurred on on battlefields throughout Europe. And the fact that those happened simultaneously, you know, should make us, I suppose, feel a little bit at ease that we're not also in the midst of massive global yeah. boots on the ground conflict while we're also trying to curb COVID nineteen. Absolutely but you know the historiography and again that's a term that as a historian i i throw around but it's essentially looking at how and when scholars have written about certain topics and what lens they are looking through so you know there's and I assume that this will repeat now that we're in in a a similar situation, but in the decade after this pandemic, there were a number of of scholarly articles that came out that really just tried to provide that sequence of of, of events and the timeline of what happened and looking at the impact. And then it just kind of settled and not very many people wrote about it uh, until the 1950s. And surprisingly, or, or maybe not so, there were two pretty devastating Pandemics that occurred during that decade. One was the Asian flu, and then the Hong Kong flu came uh, several years later. But that I think spurred, again, an interest in understanding how much have we learned about medicine? How much have we learned about emergency response in four or five decades? Through the 1970s, with the rise of environmental history and looking at how the landscape either influenced or acted kind of as its own player in these stories, you know, there was a, a, a lens that many historians picked up and said, well, how did, you know, the trenches and how did the oceans and, and the, the Navy ships and moving soldiers all over the world impact the spread of this? And I think, given our knowledge of medicine today, we know that it definitely impacted the spread of things. Yeah. Um, from from some of the medical documents that I looked at through the U.S. Public Health Service, again, that federal entity, at the beginning, they thought that this influenza was a bacterium. And they thought that sweeping the floors without putting down some sort of moisture control or oil and spurring up the dust was yeah. going to infect everybody. Yeah. So I guess you could look at that as you know early-level airborne assumptions, mm-hmm. if, you, if you will, or contagion. But, you know, it also shows how much has changed and how much we've, we've learned.
1: Yeah. Did you find where the disease actually first struck in Idaho and how those, those authorities responded? Was there an immediate response? Was it kind of delayed?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at kind of the trends of, of the movement of cases and how it spurred and spread around the world, Again, we're, we're relying on data that is as, as accurate as we can believe it to be, knowing that it wasn't very accurate. Mm-hmm. Evidence that I have come across in my research indicates that the very first cases of Spanish flu that arrived here in Idaho arrived late September 1918. And to just put that into perspective, it was in early March of that same year that the first cases of what what they were calling influenza, appeared actually at a military training camp in Funston, Kansas. And influenza was not necessarily a new disease. I mean, there had been several outbreaks of influenza in the United States uh, dating back to the 1850s and several through the 1870s and 1880s, but there hadn't been a bad one in, in many years. And so... Soldiers in this military training facility started showing, you know, signs of respiratory distress, fever, aches and chills, you know, the the typical signs of flu today. Mm -hmm. But it was hitting a population that normally wouldn't get sick. Right. Of course,
1: as were— Young men, yeah.
3: Exactly, young young men. men. Young, healthy, supposedly fit-for-war men. Even though there was disease there— the war was raging, and the United States had an obligation. And so those soldiers and folks that were in that facility in Kansas shipped out. All of a sudden, they were in Europe. And pretty soon after, I mean, through the late spring and early summer, these symptoms and this disease spread throughout Europe, um, and it spread into Asia and uh, into Africa. And there's actually a an Idaho historian named Leonard J. Arrington who was, was really one of the only scholars who I found who had written anything about Idaho and the Spanish flu. And he wrote about it in the 1970s, he himself having survived the Spanish flu in the Twin Falls area as a child. But he really categorized that initial movement into Asia and, and Africa as the first um, true epidemic level. Of what we would consider Spanish flu and and of course the term Spanish flu there's a little bit of I, I don't want to say consensus as to where the name came from mm-hmm. but uh, it stemmed from the fact that Spain was kind of neutral in this European conflict and was maybe being more accurate in their reporting mm-hmm. because it wasn't going to make the enemy think that they were weak or anything of that nature so that's really where the name came from it wasn't the place of origin but
0: but it was sorry yeah uh, it was also called though in spain it was called something else right like it was partially i don't want to say xenophobic but it was like wasn't it called the french flu in spain so there was almost i feel like a sense of blame assigned to it in calling it sort of i you know i have the country names
3: i actually haven't come across that but it wouldn't surprise me i think you yeah. know even the way that we're looking at naming COVID 19 in some of our political spheres yeah. you know if we're doing it now likely we did it then too
2: absolutely
3: so i i would think that sky you're spot on in terms of how european countries characterized it and how they they named it uh, especially in media and propaganda so yes absolutely but it traveled the globe in less than seven months and by the end of September you know the United States had kind of started seeing cases arrive back on its shores over the summer in in July and August and at first they thought well this is something that's only going to affect our military operations and so there were several uh, quarantine stations that the U.S. military set up uh, at ports along the eastern seaboard where they were quarantining ships of sailors coming back with anyone who had symptoms. And even though they recognized the need to do that, they didn't stop its spread because it landed in Idaho by the end of September. And so what you end up seeing through August and early September is the federal government, through the U.S. Surgeon General, who was the head of that U.S. Public Health Service, the federal organization, you see him starting to to request and ask for states to support the reporting efforts so they could get a sense of how widespread this was mm-hmm. and they also recognized that influenza had not been considered a contagious disease mm-hmm. for several years through the early 1900s other diseases that were on that list you know that were contagious were polio or smallpox or measles you know other diseases that we know are incredibly contagious and the fact that flu was not considered contagious is really quite interesting but they immediately pivoted and said we have to call this a contagious disease because by calling it a contagious disease it required states to report their numbers so there were two or three bulletins that came out in early September where by I think one of them had case numbers from 26 states mm. in mid-September. But Idaho was not included on that list. And then the very next week, I think the 4th of October is when that report came out, it said there were cases in Idaho, but there was no case number. Oh. And so this is where, you know, doing this kind of research – I could have spent a year or or more. I mean, this could have been the focus of my entire career if I had gone the academic route or, you know, even in, in this world. I mean, I could expand on this research by going and looking at the county records at Canyon County because that's where the first cases showed up. And going back to that kind of infrastructure creation that happened in 1907, part of the legislation that created the State Board of Health also mandated that every county also create a county board of health so we have again the state level policy and then the county level execution here in idaho the kind of connection between state government and county government is that that's that's the bridge you know the next official level of government in the state is the county level it's outlined in the state constitution that the legislature can create and abolish counties and that they have to have certain things in place for counties to establish governments, and, you know, there's rules to it. And so by by creating the this legislation, I think it was House Bill 33 that came out during 1907, they said that the county boards of health would consist of the county commissioners, which are elected positions, uh, not necessarily health-focused or even trained in medical professions, but that that group of officials would hire or bring on kind of in a biennial sense a licensed physician and that that licensed physician together with the county commissioners would serve as the board of health now of course in this legislation there was no appropriations for the counties to receive funding to pay for this person and in many cases in in the 19-teens there were several counties in Idaho where there was not a licensed physician living there So how can you hire someone if they don't, if they don't live there? Right. So in Canyon County, you know, I would have to do some more research to dig into, did they really establish their Board of Health? Was there a licensed physician? Did we get numbers from that county first because those things were in place? Mm -hmm. Or did they appear somewhere else, but there was no infrastructure to track it? And there was no infrastructure to report it back. But even after that, that first inkling of we have some cases, things happened and moved so incredibly quickly so within three weeks by October 18th the Board of Health came back together and they met in person again in the middle of a pandemic but they met in person and they were here in Boise and there were two doctors one from Rexburg one from Boise and then those other folks that sat on the on the board the Attorney General State Engineer and they basically put together three or four different motions that said, this is how we're going to respond to this pandemic. And they were following some of the recommendations from the federal U.S. Public Health Service. But in the records, you would think that something so catastrophic or that something that had so much potential for for harm would have resulted in more than half of a page of notes. (laughs) And yet that's all that exists. Wow. So they met, they had quorum, which meant there were enough people there to vote and pass motions, and they uh, implemented three or four things. They said, we're not going to sweep trains because they thought stirring up the dust was going to cause contagion. They said that they were not going to allow for public meetings, so they were going to cancel that. They were going to eliminate public drinking cups, which was a thing. So there was one cup that may exist in a restaurant or a public office, and everyone drank out of it. <laughs> and that they were going to basically watch and, and and wait, in a sense. And so those motions kind of existed and carried for a couple of weeks, and the county boards of health that existed tried to implement this. And so, again, the newspaper research comes back in to help flesh out this story. And you see in cities across Across Idaho, and uh, especially within the county seats, mm-hmm. there is major, well, much like we're seeing today. There are people on both sides of the aisle on this saying, yeah. we don't need to close things. And then those saying, we actually need to close what they suggested we close, and we need to go one step further. Yeah. So, in that very first uh, meeting of, of October 18th, the board didn't say anything about closing school. And yet, you see several cities implementing school closures, even before the board came back together and said, we're going to ask that schools close. And so here is where record making and record keeping is so critical, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: not just for historians, but for all of us to understand the world around us. There is no record in the minutes of the State Board of Health, in the official records of that government agency, past the 18th of October, 1918. Wow. They don't exist.
0: Wow. Yes. I feel like that's such a testament to our job as historians. Like, I feel like people think that, like, oh, surely it's so easy to just go find, you know, X thing, or in this case, like, how Idaho responded. But it's so, you have to, you can only work with what you have. And, I I mean, it seems astounding to me that there are not records after that but you know this is as historians this is what we have to deal with and so we have to come out and be like we don't have any information on this because they didn't there's nothing to find or if if it is it was you know kept in someone's personal papers and may have gotten destroyed or up in someone's attic or we just don't we don't have access to that and it's it's frustrating um but this is the nature of of doing history
3: yeah but I think even within that frustration, there are opportunities, right? So I, again, going back to my approach to this, it was like, okay, there's there's something. The state board didn't just disappear after October 18th, 1918, because the pandemic was raging. It didn't actually, you know, really peter out until the spring of 1919 and even then there were cases that popped up over the summer of 1919 specifically within those tribal communities and so I figured well there has to be more to this infrastructure story like how did the board make a couple of decisions and then just not make any decisions and so what I ended up uncovering again from different records primarily from the board of education and Uh, Even some of the county superintendent reports, which luckily were printed within the annual reports of the Board of Education, outlining that they actually closed schools for six weeks. And one of the biggest concerns out of that decision was whether or not they were going to pay the teachers. And a lot of these teachers in many communities ended up being the force on the ground that responded with a curative response you know they weren't the ones trying to prevent the spread they were the ones going into the homes of their pupils and helping take care of sick families and sick parents and yet the state is questioning whether or not they were going to pay them their daily salary Wow. and you know even even through the end of the year here in Boise we realized that the state efforts weren't enough and there were non, well, we would consider them nonprofits now, but basically community support and volunteer groups that helped on many levels. The Boise chapter of the Idaho Red Cross, for example, basically was the boots on the ground response for not just Boise, but all of the Treasure Valley. Their records, which surprisingly exist at the <laughs> Idaho State Archives, and there are fantastic minute books that really outline exactly what the Red Cross was doing, you know, revealed some really incredible things. And I think going back to your point, Sky, about having to really dig to find some of these answers, when I searched for influenza or when I searched for 1918 in the records at the Idaho State Archives, the Red Cross stuff didn't come up, even though it fell within my time frame. And so I did kind of a systematic review of every donated manuscripts collection at the Idaho State Archives. There are over 2,000 of them, in case you're (laughs) wondering, Uh, and I came across the Red Cross records, and I I asked our manuscript archivist Lace Johnson to pull those materials, which she graciously did, and I looked at the folder titles, it was a small box, and it said Minutes 1918 Executive, and I opened it, and then the rest of the folder title said Minutes January through August 1918 and I thought well shoot that is not in my time period but I'm gonna check this book anyways so I opened it up and it's handwritten and it's bound in leather and the pages are old and brittle and they've got that (sighs) wonderful old book smell (laughs) and I went through it page by page page by page and sure enough the first 20 pages of this 100 page book only had executive level meeting minutes on a monthly basis for like the state chapter. And so I kept flipping through and I got almost halfway through and I realized there was an entire second set of minutes in this book that had been pasted in that were not listed on the folder title, that were not listed on the box, and that were not listed in our metadata. And it had the weekly reports of the executive committee of the Boise chapter And it had the reports of the Home Service Section Committee, which was the group that did the response. Wow. And the chairwoman of that committee was Dr. Alice Pittenger, who was one of the first women doctors in the state of Idaho. She is an incredible woman. She helped found the Girl Scout camp in McCall. She donated all of that land. And here she is talking about how she will be able to manage the bills and she'll send the city council of Boise her um, expenditures for reimbursement. Now, that wasn't clearly indicated in any of the archival reconnaissance I did. But it showed that between October and December of 1918, while the State Board of Health was supposedly doing something, again, we don't have the records for it, we see how the city of Boise, who was unable to get the support it needed from Ada County, identified a group of people to help make sure that its citizens were safe and they put them to work and that was an incredible moment i mean just talking about it honestly gives me chills
2: yeah
1: yeah and that's why
3: i love my job
1: right yeah Sky and i always talk about that thrill of like finding that one article that finally explains Mm -hmm. what you've been that one hole in your story that you can't quite figure out yep Wow, this is huge though. Like... It's
3: huge. And you know, now, as a, again, we are state government and we are supposed to be preserving and promoting Idaho history. That is uh-huh. our mission.
2: Absolutely. So we
3: now have this amazing collection that we know has something in it that is incredibly valuable to helping us make better decisions about today and in and the, and the future. And so we've updated the metadata so that it reflects that we have a, a collection that's intrinsically connected to the Spanish float.
1: Ah. Yeah, Lori, thank you. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. I, I love know. that. Well, was there ever any sort of like actual lockdown or like mask mandate, anything like that on a state level?
3: So, yes. But again, I, I am hesitant to say with certainty yeah. because I, as a historian, like to have at least kind of two places that I can go to, to support my my argument and my right. evidence. But it does appear from newspaper research from various newspapers across the state that the state board of health did continue to meet through the fall of 1918 and they did institute the public school closures for six weeks they asked that all open air and public meetings be canceled and they instituted a gauze mask order it was a couple of weeks into that order that they realized that the gauze mask wasn't as uh, useful as a cotton mask. Oh. And so after that shift, you see again in the newspapers, much like you see today, clothing companies and boutiques putting in advertisements of, you can come and buy your you know, trousers and you can buy a gauze mask, Help us, help keep us safe. And I think there's also similarities in how they're talking about either following these orders or not following these orders. <laughs> through a patriotic lens. Uh, I can't remember the the city. I think it was Rockland, Idaho, a small, small city. They ended up taking action to close things down quicker than the state board had had mandated. And in some of the conversation that the the newspaper printed, some of the quotes, they indicated that they were making these decisions, that the, the city council was making these decisions because there were several unpatriotic citizens who were not
0: following
3: the rules wow and that you know that was 1918 not 2020
0: so did you find any really intense you know people in the same way that we're perhaps seeing this this year of you know it's actually patriotic not to wear a mask and for for x y and z reason or was it more sort of leaning toward you know we're here to protect each other and, and that's what patriotism looks like if that question makes sense
3: um yeah, I think so. The, I, I think the question makes sense. Again, I think that that would be a topic that would require a lot more research. The newspaper research that I did, you know, when you try to just pull all of the papers from an 18-month time period, you you get a lot of responses, a lot of results, and I think more than anything, the newspaper research indicated how how the 1918 influenza really adversely affected women across Idaho and that it was looked through you know that because women were the caregivers because women were the nurses because women were the ones coming into the home to care for the children of the sick families that there was a an effort to support our women through all of this and that if following the orders meant that the nurses wouldn't get sick then that was something that everyone should do Uh, and I think that again today you know you see how a a number of of working moms are now working moms at home and teaching students and trying to do their full-time job and I think any sort of medical emergency throughout history is going to have a a bigger impact on uh, the female population simply because of the traditional roles that they have filled and that society has expected them to fill but from that patriotic lens, you know, I think if that pandemic had lasted longer, we might've seen more of that. You know, in comparison to what we're experiencing now with COVID-19, we are more than six months into it. And in 1918, this influenza was kind of dying down at the four month mark. And so it was a little bit different. And the strain and stress of ongoing uncertainty probably didn't weigh as heavily then um, as we are feeling it today just because we've got an extra couple of months that we're that we're in this and um, I think given the you know the media and the news coverage that we're seeing today it's not exactly slowing there was a a really great piece that uh, another local scholar did in the news recently talking about waves and are we in the second wave or not and um, I think she brings up a good point because the Spanish influenza was such an anomaly in so many ways, right? It hit the younger population. It spread incredibly quickly. It had an incredibly high death toll and impact. And then it went away. And uh, other, you know, contagious diseases that have lasted and and spread, I mean, you know, we had tuberculosis hospitals open for decades because that was contagious and it was here and we were dealing with it and it, it wasn't contagious in the same sense of influenza but the, the longevity of it affected folks differently and i think had the 1918 influenza lasted even six months longer than it did The issue of what is patriotic and what is not, and what is good for your fellow citizen and what is not, would have definitely played a bigger
2: role. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. The Old Idaho Penitentiary became part of the Idaho State Historical Society in 1975. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the Enduring Triumphs and Tragedies at Idaho's Only Penitentiary from 1872 to
3: 1973. Stay tuned. We've seen the development of this region through kind of a mythic lens of well you know I'm gonna go out west and you can't fence me in and you can't put that in my backyard and um, I think, again, once time has passed and once we are out of our current situation, I think it would be a really interesting comparison to look at 1918 or even a previous um, non-influenza health crisis through that regional lens of how did people in the West respond differently to the rest of the country. I think had everyone who was an elected, you know, leader or a city official had more context as to how did this happen 100 years ago. Right. We would not have waited as long to implement some of these things. Mm-hmm. Or, on the flip side, we would have let them be enacted for a longer amount of time. And we would have, I think, had, had the, the evidence to say we're doing this because of. Absolutely. Yeah. We've learned from our mistakes. We have seen how they did this in the past and how they got through it. And yes, we're saying that, and we're we're encouraging you know camaraderie amongst our fellow citizens to do what is what is best for everyone and to take a moment a moment to reflect that your freedom may result in somebody else's harm you know that that may result in harm, and again, I don't want to get into any of that because. As a historian, you know, we are looking at the past and to pass judgment on what's happening in this exact moment is not necessarily our job. But again, I think it just speaks volumes of how important it is to make sure that you have the right people at the table when crises show up Mm -hmm. and that there should always be a seat for a historian.
0: Now, I do, have, I do have one last question, um, and again, you may not have found this uh, just since your focus was a little bit more local, but was there any sort of evidence in, like, the newspaper or anything that there was sort of a federal response, um, or was it purely local in, in this regard?
3: Again, in my research, I could only access stuff that was either within the Idaho State Archives or available to me digitally uh, because so many of our repositories across the country are closed and uh, with more time and more resources I would have loved to go to uh, Washington DC or College Park Maryland and look in the records of the U.S. Attorney or excuse me the U.S. Surgeon General or the U.S. Public Health Service but surprisingly the CDC actually has a number of historical documents from the U.S. Public Health Service and the U.S. Surgeon General digitized and available for researchers online. And so in looking through that material, what I was really finding was the federal agencies and the federal government's role was in serving as kind of the communications officer, if you will. And They were being incredibly consistent in putting out reports on a weekly basis so that we had a sense of what was happening nationwide. And having that kind of 30,000-level foot reporting uh, was, I think, the biggest role that they played, at least from, from where I was and from the research that I've done. In some of the additional research I did for this paper to kind of flesh out how our public health systems changed after the pandemic, we we do see that there was an effort by the federal government to kind of come in to Idaho and help us create better infrastructure and to really get at that effort to create county-level response. Uh, in fact, there was a report in the Idaho State Archives um, under the collection of the Department of Health and Welfare that was just a, again, a lucky find. It wasn't necessarily outlined on the finding aid or in the metadata, but it was a report from a U.S. representative of the U.S. Public Health Service from the late 1920s who came in and did a full assessment of our public health systems. And he identified that we weren't ready to respond to a public health crisis. And this was in the 1920s. So I'd have to go back and look at the source documentation, but I, I want to say I'm, I'm remembering that it was before uh, the stock market crash. And so knowing what that did to the country and what, what the Great Depression did in terms of providing access just to general nutrition and, you know, how children experienced malnutrition throughout the 1930s and how there wasn't opportunity for sanitary places to live and food and all of that. You know, we, we had, at that point, almost 10 years of experience in dealing with 1918. And yet, the federal government still thought we had some some work to do. Interestingly, out of that report, we, we see that Twin Falls County was the first to kind of say, you're right, we need to do this a little bit differently. And they actually created the position of a county nurse. First county to do so, and it came in in the 1920s, and following that effort and really paying the county nurse to, to do her job, other counties followed suit. And then that then led to the creation of kind of multiple county health units, which is the precursor for our um, health districts today. So,
0: you know, in 1918, that there actually almost wasn't an expectation that the federal government would sort of get involved—that it was very much up to state and local governments to uh, to take care of of their own, essentially—and and how that is such a notable difference from what we're experiencing in COVID nineteen that we've fully expected a federal response, you know, sort of one way or the other, and and that we really expected the president and and larger political. Uh, Positions to to really have a, a strong uh, way to respond to this, and how interesting how the role of the federal government has changed so drastically in those hundred years, and sort of what we as American citizens have come to expect.
3: What we end up seeing is in the trajectory of a hundred years of public health response nationally. You know, there there was an expectation in the, in nineteen eighteen that these women's groups would really kind of step up and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, And whether it was the Red Cross or the Junior Leagues or sewing groups, I mean, sewing groups were like a thing in every single city across the United States at the turn of the century. Or music groups. I mean, women's clubs emerged between 1890 and 1910 in massive numbers. Mm -hmm. And those groups of women were typically some of the first responders. And that was almost an expectation because they had – built an opportunity into that club life so that when crisis struck or when there was a need they were basically proving to their husbands and their brothers and the rest of society that they had a role to play whether they did it intentionally you know i think that that could be a research paper in and of itself and then to to see that expectation to your point sky totally shift over 100 years to to this expectation of no, it's a federal top down instead of a grassroots up approach should should I think make all of us take a step back and think mm-hmm. what's the most feasible, and should we really be relying on a federal response when our population has you know grown exponentially over a hundred years yeah. and the cost of everything has grown exponentially over a hundred years, mm-hmm. and should we be focusing more on building community and making sure that we have organizations that that we support in good times so that they can support us in the bad times that would be a great a great research question absolutely see if the governor wants that one next
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know based on your understanding what do you want listeners to take away from your research during our current pandemic that we're in what's the biggest takeaway what's the sense of relief that you want people to have or the sense of dread or
3: I think what I really want listeners to take away from this is, well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, the importance of context and the importance that historians can bring to any problem. That's absolutely critical. We are not just folks that know a whole bunch of random stuff. We are not just uh, in academia. We are not just teaching. We are providing and augmenting the way that people see the world is really what we're doing. On that same point, I think it's really important for readers to recognize that even though I am a historian and I am the Idaho State historian, and I know a lot about Idaho, I do not know everything, nor does any historian, but that really what we have is a very distinct set of skills and very specific training to know how to answer a question, how to formulate an argument, how to support that argument, and how to do it in a reasonable amount of time. I had about seven weeks to write this 35-page document while also doing the rest of my day-to-day job, which is supporting all of the other agency efforts, and in fact In the midst of this document, I actually was doing content review for the Idaho Penitentiary's new exhibit, Disturbing Justice. So if you're local and you haven't come in to see that one, come and take a peek, Uh, because I managed. That was one of the balls I was juggling. Uh But also, again, to recognize it takes time to do this research, and that if you have a question about something and you're in a position where you need to make a decision based on this context, come to us as quickly and as as soon as you know you're going to need help so that we have enough lead time to really develop the context and really do the research to answer the questions. So that's just kind of from like a process perspective. In terms of what the context actually says, I think that this, this whole story should give everybody hope because much like we're experiencing now where we are in a life and a day-to-day uh, existence with a lot of uncertainty and and a lot of risk we can look back to the idahoans of 100 years ago and see that they did it too and they came out of it and what was most important about how they came out of it was that there were efforts to remember it and there were diaries written about what it was like and there were photographs taken of everyone in their masks and we're doing some of that collecting now and it's incredibly critical because in 2120 100 years from now there's going to be someone else in my seat and there's going to be someone else in your seat Anthony and there's going to be someone else in your seat Sky and they're going to be saying how did they do it how did the old pin still operate were were they really open were there (laughs) folks coming through the door Wow, look at how they kept everyone safe. Uh Look at the materials we have in this amazing collection at the Idaho State Museum. Look at this document at the Idaho State Archives of somebody who was going to go to prom and then didn't get to go, and what that has meant for their future. So I think it just is part of, this is just part of life right now, but it's not gonna be part of life forever. Mm -hmm. Nothing is, that's the beauty of history. We can guarantee through this study and through this field that everything changes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've thought actually so many times. I've been so thankful actually for my position as a historian in this time, especially being able to look back. You know, we have been met with what feels like such chaos. And to remember that 100 years ago, not only were they going through a similar pandemic, but they had just finished the worst war that anyone in living memory perhaps with the exception of the Civil War, depending on how many veterans were still alive and that, you know, that they had ever seen. And and to them, this probably felt unending as well. And so to know that, yes, they also came out of it has been so reassuring. And, and you know, I've been trying to tell my friends and family that they're like, yes, it is very scary right now. And, and it is so unsure. But they were going through, you know, just as much, and if not more, um, and that people through every instance in time, you know, the Great Depression probably felt like this, and World War Two probably felt like this, like, we can do it, and, and I, so I very much appreciate that sentiment, and I want to plug, if you're interested in history, and you've got, you know, if you're young, consider becoming a historian. Um, there's not been a more fulfilling task in my life, honestly, than working as a historian and, and all that to say, I agree with you and, um, you know, we'll, we'll all be okay. We'll figure it out. We'll get through it.
3: Yeah. And if you're having doubts about the world, find a historian and talk with them. You will feel better.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
3: I promise.
1: hannah <laughs> <laughs> can listeners find your brief anywhere?
3: So currently I am working with the association of state and local history to try to get this published so until we figure out the best route to take it, um I am holding some of it back. But if there's interest from any of your listeners, I'd be happy to talk with them more. Maybe we have a second episode of this or we can put some of the content out through our various social media channels.
0: This has been a lot of fun and um so great to learn uh, about Idaho's uh, response. So thank you very much for coming and talking about it. And, I've,
3: uh, I've really enjoyed this. I was a little nervous coming in. I mean, I reread my paper and I felt prepped. But I think with any new medium or new interview yeah. process, it's like, okay, am I going to have the answers? But <laughs> this has been fantastic, and I yeah. I would love to come back on for yeah. something else.
1: Absolutely. We'll have you back anytime, Lori. Great. Seriously. <laughs>
3: You know, the only other thing that I think we should also recognize in all of this is going back to the government component Mm -hmm. and that in the 1918 influenza pandemic, there were changes passed through legislation that affected the way the rest of the health systems developed Um, and even the way the rest of, of industry developed in some cases. I mean, what really came out of the Spanish flu at least here in Idaho, was an adjustment to how the state characterized and credentialed nurses. And I don't know if I ended up putting this into into my paper, but I came across it as part of the research that before 1910 or 1911, you had to be registered to cut hair. You had to be a registered barber. To be a nurse, you could voluntarily register with the state of Idaho. And that existed through all of the 19-teens. And then coming out of this pandemic, we recognized, at least the state recognized, that nurses played as critical of a role, if not a more critical role, than the doctors did. And that we didn't know where that human resource was across the state. And so they Idaho State Legislature passed legislation in 1919 redefining what a nurse registry was and kind of moving around some of the pieces for who who got to say what a an education curriculum looked like for nurses and they went one step further in 1921 and really defined and nailed down what you had to do to become a registered nurse it was required for you to practice as a nurse to be registered and only after having gone through all of those processes could you put the term rn behind your name And before 1921 in Idaho, that didn't exist. That was not a term, uh, an RN. It didn't exist in the same way that we think of it today. And so with COVID, you know, I think that we should be watching how our representatives and how the Idaho State Legislature is going to convene in this coming session and even in subsequent sessions uh, and see how they're going to try to respond through legislation Mm -hmm to the current COVID crisis and whether that means providing for more flexibility in what an an emergency order looks like or adapting how they may or may not have to function given social distancing guidelines and what's allowed for a vote and what's not allowed. I just, I think that would be something I'd like to leave the listeners kind of thinking about and kind of watching for to see if you know in a sense we kind of repeat ourselves yeah. and if history repeats in that same way
1: i think that's a great way to end this all right thank you so much for being on the show we we like to end every episode with a little tag if i were to say do your own time how would you respond
3: sky why don't you give me an example and then i'll i'll get my answer ready
0: well i mean i i know the the end of the tag so i might be cheating a little bit
3: okay well hold on the don't say so, it. let me think y- y- Do your own time and uh, learn your lessons.
1: I love it. Do your own time, learn your lessons. (laughs) All right, everybody. (laughs) Thank you all for tuning in. This has been such an insightful conversation. I actually feel a lot more relieved after reading your paper and, and hearing your research and your understanding of the 1918 pandemic. So everybody, do your own time.
0: Do your own number. Take
1: care of yourselves out there.
0: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.